Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. We've got a pair of whip-smart experts on the show this week talking about an issue that I think almost everybody can relate to, which is how can you use mindfulness in a work situation. So how do you deal with emails? Uh, How do you stay awake in boring meetings? How do you deal with bad bosses? Rasmus Hogard and Jacqueline Carter are experts in this stuff. They work with organizations, huge corporations all over the world. They're also going to talk a lot about sleep. I got a ton out of this conversation, and I think you will too. So they're coming up. First, a few very quick items of business. Uh, Number one, There are some new meditations up on the 10% Happier app that you should know about. One of them is called Partying with Your Neuroses. That's by Dan Harris. The other is called Sleeping with Kindness by Oren Sofer, who, as I've said before, is one of our most popular teachers on the app and has been on this podcast twice. The other item of business is uh, is, uh, related to uh, a familiar name for podcast listeners, Jeff Warren was just on the show recently, and he and I wrote a book together called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. He's going to do a meditation retreat for fidgety skeptics in upstate New York at the Omega Institute on May 10th through 12th. You should sign up for this. I think this would be, especially for people who haven't done a retreat before, this would be a great way to dip your toes in. Two days of exploring with a guy that I like to call the MacGyver of meditation. He's hilarious. He's also pretty good looking, I'm told. You can reserve your spot on the cushion by going to jeffwarren.org slash event slash Omega Retreat. jeffwarren.org slash event slash Omega Retreat. Check it out. All righty. Rasmus Hogard and Jacqueline Carter. They both work at a place called the Potential Project, which is, per their very short bio, a global leadership training organizational development and research firm. They help leaders and organizations enhance performance, innovation, and resilience through mindfulness and other practices grounded in neuroscience and research. They partner with forward-thinking companies such as Cisco, Lego, Accenture, Microsoft, and 500-plus other global clients. Rasmus has written a couple of books. Uh, One is called One Second Ahead, Enhance Your Performance at Work with Mindfulness. The more recent one is called The Mind of the Leader. He's also written a bunch of stuff in Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and Business Insider. And Jacqueline has a Master's of Science in Organizational Behavior. She spent 20 years working with large-scale organizations, helping them get their acts together. And she's also had a wide range of leadership and consulting roles in a variety of industries, including transportation, uh, insurance, and government. And she's been – both of these folks have been – studying and practicing uh, mindfulness for quite a while, and they in, and they embed it deeply in what they do. So let me stop talking, and we'll get right to Rasmus and Jacqueline. Here they are. Thank you both for being here. Pleasure. Let me start with you, Rasmus. How did you get into meditation? I got into meditation about 25 years ago when my brother had a girlfriend who was meditating, and when I heard the word meditation, it was kind of, it just clicked for me, and I thought, that's, that's what I've been really, looking for. Really, that sounded good to you? Yeah, it was so weird. That was before medita- the word meditation was really known. So I went to the to the east. I went to Nepal and India and started studying with teachers there. Okay, because well, if somebody twenty five years ago had to- dropped the word meditation, I-, I would not have dropped everything and gone to Nepal. 
because I would I thought meditation was ridiculous. So what what about it was attractive to you? Well, I don't. It was it definitely was ridiculous. Some of the first teachers I met that was pretty ridiculous. Uh, Where were you living at the time? I was living in in Copenhagen, Denmark. And uh, so the f- early teachers you met in Copenhagen were no. I actually met the first teachers in Nepal. Oh, actually, okay, uh, and that so was a bit uh, pretty esoteric. I would say not like uh, not like meditation or mindfulness as as I would teach today, or as as many of the teachers today, certainly in the West, are teaching it. Pretty different. And how how old were you? What were you doing in your life? What? I was eighteen, and I was a student. Okay. And your parents? How did they feel about the fact that you? Uh, my mother was afraid I would stay in a monastery and never come back. But they were okay. And so, did you drop out of school to do this, or no? I took a, I took a sabbatical for okay. for half a year and, and and went off. And then I came back, and then it's been doing retreats and mainly studying with His Holiness Dalai Lama for for many years now. Personally, yes, personally, and and in big audiences, both. Yeah. So you're how did you become a student? <laughs> that's that's a pretty big deal. How did you become <laughs> a student of the Dalai Lama? Uh, if you're let's say if you're if you're committed enough to the practice and if you if you if you engage yourself in those circles then then that's what happens. So your practice is a Tibetan Buddhist practice. Uh, yes, but I would say it's a Western form of that. So completely secular, completely scientific, more in the style that that you would do it. So some of the teachers that I've been following for the past uh, fifteen years are more Westernized teachers. So taking off the the whistles and the bells and the colors and the mantras and all that stuff and just a mind practice. Right, but you know, if you're studying with the Dalai Lama, he's doing a lot of you know prostrations and prayers and yeah, and 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 like uh, like when you meet him, you give him a kata. But if, but if, if but so a, what's that? a kata, that's like this silk scarf you give, oh. and it's kind of a traditional Tibetan blessing. Nowadays, he just doesn't accept that. So he doesn't want that distance. He doesn't want all that esoteric stuff. For him, it works because that's how he grew up. But he says for Westerners, that's absolutely pointless. Gotcha. Um, and what about you, Jackie? How did you get into meditation? I actually started more from a scientific perspective. So I just thought it was so interesting, this idea of studying your mind. And so I really started more from reading. I actually did read books on Buddhism and just thought the whole idea of being able to – you can manage your mind. You can manage your thoughts. Your, your thoughts are not your own. I just thought that was so fascinating. So for many years, I took it very much from a head perspective. And it was really in my early 20s that I w- went on my first retreat and started actually to realize, oh, this is not just something you think about. It's actually something that you need to practice. What, what was that first retreat for you? A Goenka retreat, uh-huh. uh, which is a very intense uh, – I don't know if you're familiar with it. I but am, but yes. you should tell listeners who may not be. Yeah, so 10 days of silence, noble silence, so no eye contact, no contact at all with anybody, and sitting for 10 hours a day, which for some people sounds terrible, but I can just assure any listeners that it is one of the most amazing experiences to be able to really truly sit and be alone with your own mind and, and have that amazing experience. It's something I recommend to everyone. So you were in your 20s at the time. Yes. What kind of change did it bring about for you? Uh, I mean, that's a difficult question because I think there's so many changes that it brings about. I think that to start to be able to have that greater awareness of the thoughts that you have, that there are choices you can make about whether to, to take them down the rabbit hole that they take you down or to simply be able to observe them and let them go, to recognize that... Um, emotions are also just experiences that you have. They're not something that you have. They don't, you don't have to reside. They don't have to be the home that you reside in. They actually can be things that are just that you observe and that you learn from, that you understand. So it really changed my entire, I would say it was transformative. It changed my relationship with my, with my thoughts, with my mind. 
and just made me much more calm, much more relaxed, and much more, I think, reflective in terms of how I approached every situation, every day, every moment. And where where are you? Do I detect a Canadian accent? You do, Dan. Yeah. That's a very good ear. Yes. Did I say about? As I, I, something. Something outed me. <laughs> I'm not sure what it was, but sorry. Where? where? Sorry, um, I have to. Yeah, a, exactly. I was go. trying to. You're, yes, be proud of my Canadian <laughs> culture to apologize. Yes. <laughs> Where in Canada? Uh, originally from outside of Toronto. And what were you doing at the time that you were in your mid twenties? What was going on in your life in your early twenties when you decided to take a retreat? What's well, your background? Yeah, I think that. Well, for me, actually, I started when I was when I was fourteen, and my high school had a world religions course, and Buddhism was part of that. So that was really, as I said, when I started just reading a lot of books. And uh, but it wasn't really until I got into my twenties that I was able to to start to realize that wait a minute, there was there was more to this than that, and. Um, that was my experience. And what is your professional training? My professional training is management consulting. So I was with Deloitte Consulting for many years. I have a background in organizational behavior, a master's in that. And uh, it's one of the things I just love. I just feel so passionate about helping organizations to enhance performance. And specifically, my specialization is managing change. And for me, for many years, I kept my meditation practice a secret because in Deloitte Consulting, the fast-paced world of high-pressure consulting environment, the last thing that I was going to tell anybody was that I like to sit on an uncomfortable cushion for extended periods of time and count my breaths. That was just never going to happen. And so it really took me a long time. For me, I, I talk about it as coming out of the closet as a, as a mindfulness practitioner because I just realized the incredible benefit when you look at organizations and how they manage change, the idea of being able to integrate these practices into that environment is so powerful. But it's really, and I again, I really respect people like yourself and, and others who have helped all of us be able to bring these into daily work life. And, and for us, our passion is bringing them into daily organizational life. And when you say us, what are you referring to? Potential project. That's what we do. Tell us, tell, tell us what is the potential project? Rasmus. Potential uh, Project uh, is a global uh, leadership uh, organizational change and research firm. Uh, so what we do is we're training basically leaders and employees in large organizations like Google and Microsoft and so on in becoming more clear-minded, focused, and, and calm. Uh, so basically mindfulness training for, for the corporate world. Uh, we've been doing this for about uh, 12 years now and been training 170,000 people now. It's pretty pretty extensive networks with around 250 uh, trainers around the world that is doing this work. Um, yeah, and our mission is very simply is to co-create a more peaceful, more kind world by helping people to have more calm, more focused, and more 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 kind minds. Basically, how does it how does it, sitting on a cushion or in a chair or whatever have, have any impact at all on the way a corporation works? Oh, it has everything uh, to say about that. Uh, so what we see today is that people are completely uh, living in what we call a paid reality. They're under pressure. They're always on information overload and distracted. And as a result of that, we're basically losing our ability to pay attention. We just see from a research perspective that our ability to be focused is really declining. And that means people are running around like headless chicken and not really doing what is most important, but just doing everything that calls for their attention. And uh, mindfulness is the opposite of that. It is the ability of managing our attention to really be focused on what is most important right now. And that helps, obviously, in performance and productivity, which is what the company wants. But it also helps, like you've experienced uh, from your own life, it helps to settle us and find more calm, more peace, and therefore more happiness, whether that's 10% more or less doesn't matter. But people just become happier. You know, I 
have done some meditation, and I, I definitely agree it's helped. But I still, even just in the last couple of days, feel overwhelmed and confused and, like, not sure what I should be focusing on or and, like, I have too many ideas and I'm running them in too, too many different directions. So it's not a panacea. No, it definitely not. There's no silver bullet around meditation. I think meditation helps uh, if we do the practice. If we don't, it doesn't help. Knowing about it doesn't help. Reading about it doesn't help. Doing the practice helps. It doesn't solve all problems. It solves some. And on a foundational level, it helps us to be more calm, focused, and centered. But we also need to work on how we live our lives, obviously. And that's what we have specialized in. How do we help people in the corporates to embed the practice of mindfulness into how they deal with emails, how they conduct their meetings, how they set their priorities, and how they get good sleep and how they make sure to have better work-life balance. So it's not just sitting for 10 or 20 minutes a day. It's also about how you utilize those techniques of mastering the mind into everything you do. I actually think that that may be one of the areas where I have a shortcoming in my practice is that I do the practice, but I'm not sure I really integrate it into a mm. lot of things, which is embarrassing to admit. So let's talk about some of them. How can you be mindful on your email? Well, I think the first thing is just be aware that at different times in the day, um, it's not always best to do email. So one of the things that we know is that first thing in the morning, if you've had a good night's sleep, is actually when hopefully you have the most creative, most expansive mind. And if you download your email, which too many people do first thing in the morning, checking it on their phone, you're basically dumping a whole bunch of clutter in a mind that actually potentially has really good space to solve creative problems. So just simply looking at when do you check your email through the day would actually be just a simple way to be more mindful and create less clutter. But, okay, I'm, fa- I'm fascinated by this. <laughs> okay. so, so that for me as a newsman, I need to – I feel, but maybe I'm wrong, that that when I wake up in the morning, I need to find out what happened overnight, any sort of missiles from the boss, not that my boss sends that many missiles, but whatever. Uh, It seems to me like I feel this pressure to check in, check the news, make sure that no emergency has broken out in my any of my professional endeavors or anything like that. But you're saying, I mean, do, do you think it would be responsible for me to say, no, you know, maybe instead the first thing I should do is pick up the pro- big creative project I'm working on and focus on that for a couple of minutes. Yeah, I well, and I think every job is different. Um, of course, you know, in, in news that may be appropriate that you need to check. But I mean, could you wait like maybe the first hour and not check it for the first hour to be able to do some other things? I mean, just from a mind perspective, this is about understanding our mind and making sure that we use it to the best of our ability. And honestly, checking your emails first thing in the morning, it may be necessary, but it is creating clutter. It's cluttering that potentially spacious, open mind. I've never spent a happy hour or two checking and answering emails. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and good have you good ever awareness. Been more creative from checking emails? Like, no. is it ever bringing fantastic ideas, right? No. It's a complete right. drain on our creativity and uh, in many ways our performance. And when we look at, at, at emails in general, you know, 90% of it is rubbish and we really don't need to attend to it. And I know that sounds radical, but it's really true. If you go back and check the emails, like if you go on a vacation for a week and you come back, how much of that can you just purge? Because it's it's redundant. It has been taken care of even without your interference. Yeah, well, also at ABC News, there's an enormous amount of email around the news events of the day. And I also am on a a regrettable but tremendous amount of – you know, P- spam PR type stuff. So I have a lot of easy pruning I could do, but there are still, I mean, I helped to, I'm a co-founder of a business. I uh, host a couple shows 
here. So there, there are things that I, I do have to pay attention. Definitely. But, and I have creative main... projects going with various people in the building, and I need to you know nurture them and make mm-hmm. sure I don't miss stuff. But it's it's a pain in the butt. But do you need to pay attention first thing in the morning? Well, I actually that's, the I, that's why I'm I'm really that's why I honed in on that because yeah. I I agree first thing in the morning is in my experience when it's the most fertile territory mentally, and I also agree that getting sucked into the minutia of whatever on your email is like kryptonite for your creative capacity. And, Correct. Uh, <laughs> so that seems like. A problematic move I've been making, and maybe I need to rethink it. That's why I hopped on that. Well, and the other aspect of it is looking at just notifications. I mean, one of the things that we know is every time we get a pop-up notification, whether it's email or text or whatever it might be, it's a distraction for the mind that takes us away from whatever we were doing. And one of the things is just to really look at, are those notifications actually valuable for you? Do you have your email like Outlook open all the time and it's distracting you from I other do. work? And yes. Then maybe mm-hmm. not. Because, I mean, seriously, this so just is... Just shut it down. Just shut, shut down it down and just decide when are you actually going to check your email. You're talking about like when you're on your desktop. When you're on yeah. your desktop, exactly. On your phone for that matter. A, a real cool study from, from Stanford came out a few years ago finding that the more often we let ourselves distract by incoming messages because of the pings or the pongs or the, or the, the notifications coming up, the more our prefrontal cortex will shrink. And the prefrontal cortex is associated with our ability to actually be focused yeah. and our executive function. So having a thinner prefrontal cortex is really a challenge in terms of living a meaningful life. I agree there are structural things you can do, like turning off the notifications but then there's also i notice a real tick that if i'm working on something creative and i hit a a tough spot i immediately want to reach for instagram or email or some dopamine hit yes Mm. exactly and i think that's habit and it's also i think it's just like like any quick fix right it's like like reaching for a chocolate bar and i think that the invitation is does that really help you if it does great i mean maybe that does help you get over that creative Yeah, it probably does, and it probably just sucks you in to a distraction (laughs) fest, which is wonderful for the mind because the mind loves, you know, tapping into novelty and something new and something. But it, but what could be better, you know, more beneficial is going for a walk, you know, getting some, getting some space, taking a performance break, or maybe doing one minute of mindfulness practice, right? Just to be able to clear the clutter because that's what you really need—a spacious mind. I hate to be the annoying person who espouses taking a walk but or um, meditating in those moments. But the fact of the matter is now that I have a, a marginally improved self-awareness through meditation, I notice that when I step outside, mm-hmm. all the baloney that I was worried about, some significant percentage of it evaporates. Exactly. And I'm seeing things more clearly in a different way with a different perspective. Or if I sit and meditate, I may – I found this when I was writing my last book and I was really miserable the whole time. And uh, occasionally I would pull away and just meditate, which felt counterintuitive. But often the problem that I was trying to solve, I would get answers, not necessarily the answers I was looking for. And sometimes they were stupid. But <laughs> but sometimes there was there was something really there. But it was certainly an inv- a geyser of – new ideas that were not available to me when I was standing there intermittently pounding my head against the computer screen and checking social media. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. This is a challenge that I'm going to have to tackle. <laughs> this sounds like an intervention for us, Dan. This is exciting. Yeah, no, I like, like to use this we, podcast. What else can we help you with? Well, I'm, go- I, I'm prepared to continue to ask because I'm going to use this podcast for my own personal benefit and um, um, 
If you don't want to listen, um, no, you, you should listen. What else? Uh, sleep was the other thing you mentioned in terms of helping people. No, actually, mm. before we get to sleep, meetings. Yes. Mm. I think this is another area where I don't do a good job of bringing mindfulness to the table. Mm. I often find that's me at my worst in meetings, especially if we're discussing a creative project that I'm trying to push forward and I'm get, I notice that I'm impatient uh, with other people or if they're not – Fully understanding everything I have in my head, I can't. I can't believe how dumb they are. When, of course, I haven't even explained it to them. Uh, so, how does one bring the practice into meetings? Mm. Uh, the first thing is to be pre- prepared for the meeting. What often happens in many organizations is that we have back-to-back meetings, meaning we're kind of a few minutes late for after one meeting. So, meeting runs over, meaning we'll be too late for the next meeting. Meaning we're going to enter that meeting in the 15 first minutes. We're just going to be focused on wrapping up what happened yes. in the previous meetings. We're yeah. constantly behind from a mental point of view. Yeah, that's So right. a really practical thing is to always end meetings five minutes before time. And like in your Outlook, always schedule so that you have at least five minutes of transition time. And what you do in that transition time is you basically prepare yourself mentally. So whether you're walking to, a, to another meeting room or whether you're just sitting and waiting for a conference call or a phone call, rather than checking Instagram or emails or Facebook or whatever, just take one minute or even just 30 seconds to just sit there and just breathe. Just take a short pause whereby your mind settles a little bit and your mind will be more clear for the next meeting. A couple of years ago, I started volunteering in a hospice and it was I was trained by a pair of Zen Buddhist priests who actually been on this podcast before, one of our early podcasts with Chodo and Koshin. They're married Zen Buddhist priests mm. and they run this program that trains people how to be hospice care providers. And they had this piece of advice they gave me that was great advice that I have utterly failed to apply in any meaningful way in my actual life. But when you're going from room to room, they said, they said, Koshin said that often we are like these huge Macy's Day parade floats, like our head is the whole thing. And we're not in any way connected to our body. And we're just kind of all head floating from meeting to meeting and just bringing with the stuff from the last meeting into the next meeting. And they basically said, just make a little tiny imperceptible ritual of perhaps just touching the door frame mm-hmm. as you're going from hospice bed to hospice bed, going from room to room to talk to these residents to reset, to just remind the mind that uh, this is a new interaction here. And I noticed even yesterday I went into this one meeting here at ABC, the culture is often such that even we often have a lot of unscheduled meetings like we got to catch this one editor at one point and this one you know senior producer at one point to get her to sign off on our plan and we we've got it 5 minutes and she's half checking her email and so you're kind of rushed and i didn't take any reset i just came barreling into it and you know it was fine but didn't i i felt like i didn't conduct myself the way i would have liked to have conducted myself mm-hmm. and Anyway, I, that was a word salad there, but I don't know if there's anything you want to react <laughs> well, to. Well, <laughs> I, think, I think, Dan, first of all, it's great awareness, right, in terms of – and I think that's one of the things – the other things that the practice gives us is it, it gives us an awareness. Am I in the right state of mind to be having this meeting right now? Because if I'm not – like, for example, especially if you're you know, trying to convince something, somebody of something or maybe if you're giving somebody feedback, like you really need to check in to make sure, am I in the right state of mind to be having this important discussion? 
But I think the other thing that you point out, and this is one of the things that we look at, is, of course, organizations aren't just about individuals. They're individuals working within a collective, within a culture. And what we really look at is not just about you walking in with the right frame of mind to be able to have the most effective meeting. But what about your colleagues? You know, like you say, like if you're rushing and grabbing people on the fly, how really truly prepared is that producer to have that conversation? Now, you said it went well, but I mean... Are you actually being kind of, you know, grabbing the person on the run? Should, if it's a really important discussion, you know, should you give her a chance to be able to clear her clutter, to maybe have some time to make sure she's fully prepared? Because if she's not in the right mind state, your chance of being successful is diminished. Yes, no, I think that's absolutely correct. It would require a big cultural shift here that's much more systemic than I am personally capable for, because if I hadn't cluttered, this woman's mind, somebody else would have. <laughs> yes. So it's not like this was uh, some unique lightning bolt. It's just that her day is a series of Clutter. lightning bolts. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you just, but we can't progress unless we get her sign off. And so it's, it's just a complicated environment here. But I think that the question that we would have is is not, a, you know, radical change overnight, but are there small ways from a cultural perspective? Because if you know that everybody is walking around with cluttered minds and Macy Day parades, big inflated, you know, balloons over their heads, is that the most effective way to operate? And could having just maybe a little bit in integrating Drips of mindfulness, drips of mindfulness practice, drips of being able to help people clear the clutter, touch the wall. Everybody do that just a little bit more, 10% maybe, maybe even only 5%. But would that help you in terms of being more effective, being less stressed, collectively, maybe even enhance your performance, enhance your creativity, enhance your output? What are the other drips of mindfulness that would help in terms of how we interact face-to-face in our meetings in a professional environment, we've talked about resetting before a meeting, either on a walk or with a 30-second sit in the, in the room. We've talked about uh, the Chodo and Koshin thing of touching the doorframe and being aware that you have the Macy's Day proclivity. What are other things that we could maybe think about doing based on our meditation practices that would make us more effective in meetings? I would say silencing our mind as much as we can because, as you say, when we come with that big head, that head is so, so full and it's so cluttered, it's so basically confused. Uh, that we don't necessarily see what is most important in this conversation. So taking that time to prepare, but then when you're in it, actually take time to listen and not listen to your inner voice, but listen to what's going on out there and see what emerges from that. If we try to come into a meeting always trying to solve things, we don't solve a lot because we're so busy trying to solve that our rational mind is just running amok. And often when we try to just slow that down a little bit, Things go much faster. We try to implement this in, in Carlsberg, or we do this with all of our clients, basically. Carlsberg. The beer company? Really, yeah, the beer company. Yeah. So beer company, work. interesting. Yeah, they do good work, obviously, and, and the beer company, interesting. But they basically start doing this thing of taking a one-minute pause and being more attentive to listening uh, during the meeting so as, as, as teams. And, and they wanted to measure the effects of that. And they actually found that they reduced the meeting time with 35%. That's significant return on investment for taking one minute of break at the beginning of each meeting. So and it was not a cultural change. Together? Not a meditating. They just said, okay, now we'll just for one minute, we won't check our devices and we won't have conversations. We'll just be present in the room. That's all they said. And it wasn't like a big cultural change, no big uh, uh, reasons why. They just did it and then they, they, they measured what it did. You know what's crazy? I mean, I'm a co-founder of a company, 10% Happier. 
We don't do this. <laughs> That's a great example. Yeah. So we should be doing this. Yeah, stuff. totally. Yeah. I mean, although I have, having said that, you know, sometimes when I'm we are our headquarters are in Boston. Sometimes when I'm there, I'll say, "Hey guys, can we do a guided meditation?" And always everybody's a little surprised that I've suggested that. But it's not culturally weird. Everybody's psyched to do it. Mm. Um, mm. Whereas here at ABC, I think it would be a little. But I think Dan, you don't have to call it a guided meditation. No, I, mean, I know you can. You, don't. you can mm. call it whatever makes sense in that culture. Like one of the things, and what we find is one of the things we just say, "Hey, you know, we're all running back to back. I'm sure you just came from somewhere. Would everybody like just a minute to just settle in? That's it. Like just make it really simple." And most people say, oh, "Thank you. Like that is so nice. You know, just just take a moment and just to be able to allow yourself to fully arrive. You're here physically, but just allow yourself to arrive mentally or whatever works, the language, the culture that makes sense." But another thing that I think is really important in terms of organizations and cultures and meetings, but it's also true just in general, is to really look at your priorities. I think that too many people, the reason why their heads are so cluttered is because they've got too many things that are top priorities. And we know from a mind perspective that we cannot. That's my problem. Okay. Well, there. Yeah. Go on. But no, no, no. You, you Okay. Go. Well, it's just that we can't handle from a mental perspective, you know, 20, 30 top priorities. That's just impossible. And that makes us overwhelmed because we have this list of all these things that we really, 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 really need to do. And we really, really, really can't because we really, really, really don't have enough time or enough headspace to be able to effectively get them done. So one of the things is just to be able to be really disciplined with yourself and say, okay, you've got only so many hours in the day. What truly are your two or three top priorities? When are you actually going to do them? So schedule those into your day to make sure that you've got space to actually get those done. And the key thing is those other, however many they are, seven, you know, 10, 20 things, maybe you'll get to them, but don't think about them. Because if you're thinking about the things that you can't get done today, you're just distracting yourself Mm -hmm. from take, you're taking away from the time that you actually can do the things that realistically you can get done and that you really need to get done. So the ability to be able to let go of priorities, and I'm putting air quotes on that, priorities that you really have to be disciplined about saying you can't get done today is such a great way to be able to have more focus and more clarity. If somebody needed this in their life, and I have a friend who needs this in his life, his his initials are Dan Harris, um, (laughs) how would you go about implementing what you just described, which sounds very sane? Well, the way that we work with individuals and organizations is through a series of interventions. So a series of sessions like this, perhaps, is just talking about, you know, tell me about your daily life. Tell me about the challenges that you face from a mental perspective and looking for ways to not only do the 10 minutes of training, which we do have, and we make that very simple and, again, with no nothing fancy, just simple focusing on the breath. But more importantly, well, I would say not more importantly is and then how can we apply that to daily work life. And then we just walk through what are the things that you do every day and how would applying a little bit more focus, a little bit more calm, a little bit more clarity, how would that help you? And just, again, each week looking, because we also know that the other thing is we know that we don't change our habits all in one shot. So the idea is to have a series of short, sharp interventions where we could say, okay, this week, Dan, what would be, okay, so we've had this conversation about emails. What are you going to commit to do next week? And then next week we can touch base and follow up and, and look at maybe next week we'll focus on meetings. Right. So just have a series of giving you easy things to do, tangible, practical, that will actually hopefully save you time and energy and help you be more effective, but over a seri- series of different interventions. Gotcha. Sleep. You mentioned sleep. 
how does I haven't seen any evidence that meditation actually helps with sleep. But maybe it does. Maybe the science just isn't good enough. But riff, if you would. <laughs> yeah. So there's been research on this. Susan Carlson from uh, from I think she's from she from Calgary. I can't remember. Anyway, a researcher has done uh, research on on sleep and and mindfulness specifically, finding that it improves sleep quality. Oh, okay. On the, on the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, which is seven parts of sleep, like how quick do you fall asleep, how deep is your sleep, how often do you wake up, and so on. On average, improves all of those on on thirty seven percent. It's pretty significant. Oh, okay. And I think the the reason for that is mindfulness, uh, you know, helps to calm the mind. And when we have sleep challenges, it's not the body that is the problem; it's the mind that keeps us busy. Obviously. So what so, we recommend yeah, for sorry. for for sleep is uh, if you want to avoid sleep drugs and so on, just to do a few minutes of mindfulness practice just before you go to bed. So that you can let go of all the unresolved issues from the day and not having to deal with them in a in a half unconscious uh, state in in sleep state basically. So that's the first thing, like do a, a bit of mindfulness and the way you lie down on your bed, lie down on your back and just breathe out, relax, breathe out, relax. Every time you breathe out, just relax. And the moment you start to fall asleep, you turn on your side. So you make a conscious shift between the actual practice of mindfulness and mindful relaxation. To then falling asleep, so that's a really important point. And then when you wake up at night, which some people do and can't fall asleep again, you just re- repeat this pattern. So it's pretty simple. There's also some more radical things uh, about sleep. If you really want to have a good night's sleep, is one hour before you go to bed, no devices. Yeah, and that's. I mean, for many people, they're like, "There's no way I can do that." But I mean, again, the idea is that we know that if we have too many thoughts in our head, it's our thoughts that keep us up. So if we can do things to clear the clutter, like, you know, going for a walk or exercising or, you know, playing with your pets, you know, doing something that's a more perceptual activity, taking a shower, anything that wakes us up into a perceptual mode, which is really what we need for sleep, as opposed to a conceptual mode where we're thinking or oftentimes ruminating about things. Yeah, there's another tip that my dad, when I was little, used to give, which was um, I would complain to him that I couldn't sleep, and he would say, bend over and run as fast as you can into the wall. <laughs> I thought it was a great... Did that work yeah. well that for you? I never tried it. Oh, really? Yeah. It's an but interesting it me, one. It could put you in a perceptual it's state. Yeah. Could, the wall <laughs> impact, the running. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. We, don't, we didn't recommend that one, no, but we'll, we'll consider it, My Dan. Father, Thank yeah. you. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. 
They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You see headlines across your screen all day, but you're busy. What do you need to know? What's actually shaping your world? I'm Brad Milkey from ABC News, and every morning we start here. It was extraordinary for us watching here in Singapore. This is ABC's new daily podcast, a handful of stories, just 20 minutes. Director Comey, thanks for being with us. Newsmakers, smart reporting, taking you straight to the heart of the story. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Um, so you've written a, bu- a couple of books. The, the recent one, the most recent one, is "The Mind of the Leader" by both of you. Tell me about the book. So it's a, it's a, it's basically a research, a four-year research study with the Harvard Business Review, uh, where we have uh, assessed thirty-five thousand leaders around the world and interviewed two hundred and fifty some uh, CXOs around the world from Microsoft to McKinsey and Accenture, so big companies. CXO. Uh, chief whatever officer. Okay, so there could okay. be CEO, CFO, COO, whatever. Gotcha. Um, uh, basically to figure out what kind of what kind of mental qualities are needed for leaders nowadays to be effectual in creating engagement, motivation, and basically drive great performance in their teams and their organizations. What are those qualities that leaders need to have? And, uh, and out of this whole research, the three qualities that stood out really clearly was, first of all, mindfulness. Because without mindfulness... You really don't have anything. You're not focused. You're not self-aware. You're not present with your people. So without that, you kind of lose out on all parameters. The second one is selflessness, which is a bit of a surprise to us. Selflessness in terms of leading for the greater good and for the benefit of the the, the majority, not for your own interest. Because if you do that, people are not going to be willing to to work hard for you. Uh, the last one is compassion, which is the intention to be of benefit for others. If you as a leader show up compassion with compassion and you have actually compassion for the people you're leading and for the clients that you're you're serving, they will know you have their back and they will come back and they will work harder for you. So mindfulness, selflessness, and compassion were the three qualities that are really key for leaders nowadays. Two complaints you often hear or pushbacks you often hear to the idea of compassion in a professional context. One is, isn't it going to lead you to be pushed around? Right. So there is the challenge the both with yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is a challenge of both selflessness and compassion that people will think that you become a doormat, which is not the case. Compassion doesn't mean that you're always soft and fluffy and like petting people and then and, and giving them what they want, trying to please them. It can be about giving the tough feedback. It can be about laying people off, but doing it with the intention to be of benefit rather than just be ruthless and, and tough. So compassion is not soft, it's actually pretty hard because it means you show up as a human being in the act of doing tough things to other people, which is your job as a leader. So compassion is not soft. It's pretty hard, actually. If Here's the second question. If selflessness and compassion are what are two of the most important things these people are telling, the CXO people are telling you, why do so many toxic people succeed? (laughs) There's a there's there's equal research like our research was a four year project with a with a pretty big data sample. Uh, there's also research from people like Jeffrey Pfeffer from from Stanford. It's basically saying if you want to raise fast in ranks, you need to be all about yourself and you need to be ruthless and tough. That's the way of getting a great career. 
So there seems to be evidence for both of those paths. I think for each leader it is a decision of what do you want to bring into the world and also who is it that you want to be. We can certainly see that with those qualities of basically being good and doing good, you have a good chance of racing faster. There's also evidence that shows, though, that if you are ruthless and if you're all about yourself, um, that it'll be short-lived. You know, people won't work for you for very long. People will not necessarily, um, they certainly won't stay late. They certainly won't put in the extra effort. And I think what we're seeing now in organizations is engagement scores continue to see the Gallup poll results. Only 14% of the global workforce is engaged, and it doesn't look like it's going to go up anytime soon. And I think that now as we're looking at the jobs that we have are so much more about collaboration because no one person can have all of the answers. We need to be able to be present with each other. We need to actually enjoy working together because we're probably going to be working a lot together. If we don't have the social cohesion, if we don't have the trust, if I don't know, Dan, that you have my back, really, how how long term, how effective are we going to be in terms of our relationship? Maybe for a short period of time, a short sprint. But over the long haul, which I think is what we're seeing now is is really troubling for organizations is they're not able to build loyalty and trust and social cohesion over well, an extended period of time. What I see of particularly toxic people is they're very good at managing up and therefore get the promotions and then you have to work for terrifying people. Yeah. And I think that what we're seeing, though, from a leadership perspective is that how long are how long is the team going to stick around? I mean, I right, I right now, especially, I mean, right now, anybody can work from their couch and if they're smart and if they're capable, they can get a job anywhere in the world. Yeah, 3.5% so unemployment or whatever we're at. Well, yeah. exactly. So I think the thing is, is that in the war for talent, if you're if you're a jerk and you're treating your people like crap, how successful are you going to be? That's the bottom line. And also, I mean, what kind of person do you want to be? But if you're beyond that question, then in terms of actually your ability to be able to, to manage in today's complex, you know, diverse global um, worlds where creativity is becoming more and more important for every different, like Carlsberg, they need creativity as much as any other organization now. You need team. But you mentioned this study out of this guy out of Stanford who's found the opposite. So what is how if he were in the room, what would he be saying now? Uh, he would probably say, well, it seems both of those uh, options are great. And I hope he would say, so what do you want to be? What do you want to bring into the world? But his, his his research is compelling. You know, do the power play. Do what is good for you. And that's going to get you up there a little bit faster. But he would also say it's it's short-lived, as, as Jacqueline says. The team is not going to stay around for long. At some point, you may be... You may be told on that you're that you're that you're a bastard, and and it won't in the long term. It won't support you, and it won't feel good for you any, anymore. No, I mean that's the other thing is it doesn't feel good. Mm. Yeah, you know, many of the people who are bastards are not <laughs> mindful, so mm-hmm. they're not quite aware of the pain. Yeah, but it it doesn't feel good. Right. Well, that's so I true. think I think that's the other thing that we know is, and I think the research is backing this up. But but we actually know that it. it we are social beings. We we look from our ancestors. We look to be able to have communities and we look to be able to support each other. And we know that when we're not kind to others, it actually affects us from a neurological perspective. We may not be consciously aware of it, but subconsciously we know it doesn't feel good and it has long-term negative effects. So I think that those people that are that are rising up the ranks and feel like, wow, I'm amassing a lot of power and money and and maybe have maybe on the outside it may seem like I have it all. My question is, I don't really think they're very happy. 
And I think that's also from an organizational point of view, there is massive research now finding that organizations that are actually truly caring for their people are doing financially much better as well. So there's a real uh, business case for basically bringing good into into leadership. But isn't that so, – so we talked on the micro level of how you can be a doormat if – the people worry you can be a doormat if you're compassionate. But say, what about on the macro level for an individual corporation, you know, if you're given great health benefits mm. – Whatever mm. you know isn't how how does that help the bottom line? Right, uh, I think we share a great story of of one of the organizations that we work closely with in this research, which is Marriott, which is you know one of the biggest companies in the world. With the merger with with Starwood now seven hundred and fifty thousand employees, so massive, massive organization. They have a, a business philosophy, which is if we take care of our people, they take care of our guests, and the guests will return. That's basically their business philosophy. It's not like their HR promise or a way of thinking about people. It's a business philosophy. And it sounds good and it's something that most organizations would say, yeah, we think that as well. question is, what do you do when rubber hits the road? And Marriott had a real crush back or crunch back in, in the financial crisis when, uh, in 2008 and nine, when companies stopped traveling and people you know, canceled their vacations. Nobody went to hotels for any reason. So they went from a global occupancy rate of 87 to 4 within uh, within a few months, meaning basically they had millions of hotel rooms that were empty and they had hundreds of thousands of people that basically had nothing to do. And the, the chairman, Bill Marriott, he asked the CEO and, and the CHRO, the HR director, to come into, uh, into the boardroom and said, what's the situation? And the CEO basically shared, it's looking really bad. We are having you know, red numbers. We have to change something. The biggest cost is our people. So he turned to the HR director, David Rodriguez, and said, so David, what can we do about this? And David said, first of all, we can lay off people. That's what all companies are doing right now. And Bill just instinctively said, well, that would be wrong because people will not be able to pay their mortgage. They won't be able to put their kids through education. We can't do that. That's not compassionate. So what is the plan B? And, and David said, well, it'll be painful, but we can reduce everybody's hours. The downside of that is that people will lose, lose their health coverage and Bill Marriott again, then he said, well, that sounds like a good plan. Let's do that. But we'll have to suspend the rule about health coverage. People need their health coverage. So it was costly for, for, for Marriott uh, through a, a year and a half. But after that, uh, that recession, they came out with the highest engagement scores that they had ever had. Mm. And they have really high engagement scores in general. They have higher engagement scores than organizations like Google or Microsoft that have high-paid people and people with high education, which is normally equated with uh, with high engagement scores. But married really have people that are committed to their work because they're taken care of. Mm. So I think in a macro perspective, it really makes sense, and we see this in, in many of the organizations that we work with. What is your what, what do you guys counsel your readers or clients or whoever you're dealing with about, and this is a non sequitur, I apologize, about uh, dealing with toxic folks in the workplace? Or you know, dealing with the toddler at home because he's really <laughs> changing some of those diapers. No, I'm kidding about the kid. But the uh, on the on the grown ups who are toxic and that you know the, you just find them in the workplace. How do I think a lot of us w- wonder how do we work with those folks while not uh, you know abandoning our ideals? I think that for me, the one thing that I often look with uh, with with organizations is. To try to get that individual to see whether that's actually helping them or not. So everybody, we're all, we all are driven by our motivations, right? So is that, is that actually truly being effective for that person? And is there any way that you can look at what's important to that person? And maybe it is around the team. 
you know, maybe it is around, you know what, you're, and, and we often see this, people will come to us because a leader, they're having extreme turnover within their team. And we say, okay, so this is a problem. You're getting, you know, bad turnover within your team. You're getting, you know, whatever reviews, you know, your 360 reviews are coming back all negative. So is there something that actually is a pain point that they would say is an, they would agree is a pain point that then you could be able to use to be able to open a door to a conversation? But honestly, I mean, you know, it's, You can't do that if it's your boss, though. Well, yeah, and I think that's a tough situation. I mean, but I think that to me, I, I would say that if you if you can't find a way that they can be motivated to even slightly look at how their behavior may or may not be effective for you, that's just a tough situation. I would say then, again, for, for you, if you don't have any other choice to you need the job, you need to stay in the job, I would say then the practice is actually probably really important to you and make sure you're you're doing a lot of self-care and self-compassion because it sounds like in a situation like that, you might need it. But my experience is that I think I think human I believe in I believe in positive things about human beings. I think that most people, if they're shown a better way to be able to to lead, that includes being kind to people. I actually I actually think most people are open to that. You just may have to help them see that perhaps it's been the way that they were they were led. You know, it's it's habit. It's like that's what they think that bosses are supposed to be like. Bosses are supposed to be jerks. And if there's any way, maybe give them our book. I don't know. Something that might help inspire them to see that there's an alternative. And I think that's the big thing that we see in organizations and leaders right now is that too many leaders, I think, are habitual in terms of how they think they're supposed to lead. And it's not working for them. It's not helping them. It's not helping their teams. It's not helping their mind. And I think what we're really seeing is there's a a new wave of we need a new way of leading. We need a new way of showing up. Um, which is much more about being human, which is much more about being real, being mindful, being selfless, being compassionate. And it seems anyway that a lot of other people are supporting that. Find another leader that supports, that is a a better role model and see if they would be mentor that person or Mm. connect with them. Find some way. Um, The other book that I know that you've written, I don't know if you wrote it together, uh, One Second Ahead? Yes. Is that you solo? Uh, No, together. Together. Okay, so tell me about that book. Or either one of you can. So that's uh, that's kind of where the interview started. That is really about uh, incorporating mindfulness into all daily work activities. Uh, so we talked about the emails and the meetings and the sleep and the prioritization and so on. So it's really a book about how to become more effective and therefore more calm, more clear-minded, more creative, more resilient by utilizing mindfulness in a, in a fast-paced, uh, busy uh, business life. You, do you ever struggle in, in implementing any of the aforementioned? Uh, I would be lying if I said, no, I never struggle. (laughs) He's perfect. He never struggles. (laughs) No, it is. uh, I mean, we live the lives of our clients. So we run our global organization. So we have emails coming in in all time zones. We have meetings in all time zones. We are managing around 500 large uh, uh, clients. So we're living their life. We're traveling most of both of us, probably 150 to 200 days a year. So we know the reality that they are in. do we always manage to do everything that we say? Of course we don't. That would be ridiculous. What we are, I think, both of us 100% committed to is the daily practice because without that, it seems just things are falling together, uh, falling apart. So if how, we don't, much, how much meditation do you do every day? Depends how busy it is. If it's vacation, I think at least I go a little bit more lazy. I don't need it as much. But when it's, uh, when it's busy, especially when traveling a lot, it's at least 20, 20 to 40 minutes in the morning. Do you ever get... Really pissed off? I don't. I'm having a hard time imagining that. You, Jackie. 
I would say well, you're that, Canadian. You're not, not yeah, exactly. It's not in my culture, Dan. Yeah. So, um, but I think that what I find is that I think what Rasmus was saying about the practices. I find that when I'm, I can tell. I think what the practice has given me is I can tell when I need to pull away. Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the most valuable things that the practice has given me is that if, I, if I'm in a meeting and I'm starting to notice, wow, you know, I'm starting to feel a little bit of tension in my body or I'm starting to feel a little bit of frustration arising, I've practiced enough to know that I can see it before it takes takes over. And I can say, you know what, I'm so sorry, but I've, I've got to call it quits on this meeting. And, it, and I mean, I really seriously, like, because I know that I'm whatever I might say next is not going to be my best self. And so for me, if if, if and people don't balk at that, well, I think that people respect it, because if I say, you know what, Dan, I I really this is really important to me and you're really important to me. And this conversation is really important to me, but I'm not in the right headspace to have this conversation right now. And this applies to the toddler and maybe not so much. Sorry, I just had to throw that in because I thought that was cute. <laughs> but this applies, I think, in the workplace, but also in all of our social interactions. I think that it's so important for us to be able to call it and to say, I I'm not going to be my best self in this moment. So can I just go take a break to be able to make sure that I can clear my head and I can come back and be able to be more calm, more clear, more focused so I'm not just reactive. I want to be responsive to every moment. And if I know I can't be, then I should do something about it and take responsibility. That all makes sense. What what concern I have, um, we on the 10% Happier app, we have a communications course and uh, the teacher is this amazing guy Oren Sofer who's been on this podcast uh, at least once and one of the qualms I had in the production of that course and I would run it I sort of peppered him in the videos a lot about this and I would put the same question to you guys which is how do you implement this stuff especially around communication without sounding a little program without sounding a little earnest uh, with this you know like this conversation is really important to me. You're really important to yeah, me. And yeah. So, how, I mean, I think that was an effective thing to say. And if I was on the receiving end of that, I would like it. But I also, I wonder whether I'd think, well, okay, is is that sincere, or yeah. is that you know, or is that is that you know, is she so earnest that like she you know can't drop an f bomb or, you know, <laughs> or drink Carlsberg or whatever? So, I, I, do you think do you understand where I'm getting? I going? totally understand where you're getting, and I think that Tim. From our perspective, I would say that that's why it's so important to make this part of the culture. Because if I was the only one doing it, it might seem weird. It might seem countercultural. But if we all have an understanding of our crazy minds, right, we know that we get distracted easily. We know that when we're reactive, when we're emotional, um, and we know that emotions are a huge part of our lives and they're a huge part of our work, we know that sometimes that cannot help us be our best selves. If we can make that not just me being earnest, but actually being us being effective as a team, and we can introduce the language of attention, of emotional regulation, of responsivity versus reactivity, then I think it becomes not so weird. So I totally agree with you. If it was just me, it might seem weird, but let's make it part of the culture because it can be beneficial for all of us. But then isn't the whole culture weird? And is that such a bad thing? But I think uh, what I would add to that is also (laughs) uh, to me being mindful is not about not being tough. It's not about not being fast. Uh, To me, mindfulness is about being fast. It's about having a a mental velocity and, 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 and agility that can allow you to switch from being really focused and calm in a conversation. And then you have a conversation 
that, require, that requires that you bring some toughness into that. There's absolutely no contradiction between those. So I don't think that mindfulness is about being soft, or fluffy, or weird. It's about doing the right thing and being aware of what is the right thing right now. And that can be really fast. Final question from me. Yeah, I know you guys have heard this a million times, but what about the beef from the mindfulness crowd? And I actually think some of these folks, these sort of Buddhist purists, I have a point uh, that it, that the – in other words, their argument is that we're turning mindfulness into mic mindfulness by bringing into these corporations, focusing on performance and perhaps playing into the desire of management to have happy, compliant, super productive employees – What's your take on this critique? I think there's uh, I think there's value to that for sure. And and coming from a Buddhist background myself, and having been a researcher for years, uh, I totally buy into that. Um, at least in theory, uh, two things: the compliance. Um, uh, we don't see people becoming more compliant. We see people, and we have worked with hundreds of thousands, and I personally worked with at least a few uh, thousand people. I see people becoming more self-aware and standing more up for what they believe is right. So I have seen people going against ethical or unethical decisions in organizations because mindfulness simply allowed them, they could not just sit and, and watch that. So I don't believe in the, in the compliance. Even yeah, it's not theory, like taking it makes Valium, sense. you know? No, it's not. It's totally not like that. So, Nothing so, against so, Valium. <laughs> that's probably a good thing. But uh, yeah, so that, that's one thing. I don't think, I don't believe in the compliance thing. The thing about, is it just going to turn people into, is, are we just feeding the, 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 the dragon here? Are we just making people more productive? Um, I think there's a risk of that. And it depends how you teach the mindfulness. What is it that you bring into the teaching of the actual practice? Yeah, because you, you're bringing in all this like Canadian stuff around compassion and uh, kindness and being present for other people. And so it's yeah. not just one second ahead with your exactly. email being able to respond exactly. quicker. So if you do it just for that sake, I think it's a complete missed opportunity of creating something positive in the yeah. world. Yeah. Go Canada. <laughs> Go Canada. I'm kidding. It's not just Canadian. Uh, do you want to bite at that apple before we go? I would just say that uh, I think that for me the big thing is, is the way that we're working today, is it working for us? And if it's not working, and I think that this is what we see, a lot of organizations, they're not embracing this because they think that, you know, it'll make their people more productive or they're really looking at this because the way that we're working today is not effective. And the idea of being more focused, more calm, more clear-minded, wow, actually, I could actually be nicer. It could be a nicer place to work. And lo and behold, it also can make us more productive. Yeah. I mean, your timing is good because for me, some of the ways that I'm working are not working for me. So it's good to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, before we go, let's just plug everything you've got. Um, uh, we, whoever wants to go can just give us all the books, all the social media handles, the websites. Whatever. <laughs> we we suck at this. We're we are really not a commercial company. We're set up as a, as a, in, in a, a not-for-profit principle. So we're not here for the commercial gain, I have to say. Having said that, if anybody's interested in bringing mindfulness uh, to their organization, go to www.potentialproject.com. So you're a 501c3? Sorry? You're a 501 no. you're... We actually we're based, the company is, is, is founded in Europe, so it's a different, a whole different uh, structure there. Uh, but it's, yeah. it's a non-profit. It's, not a, it's operated on not-for-profit principles, meaning there are no shareholders getting any, any, any returns, there's no profit paid out, there's no bonuses, there's pretty low salaries to everybody because we believe so much that the methods of mindfulness, self and compassion should be freely available to everybody. So we're doing this work because we really believe it's important. But we do it in a very professional, not in a 
in a in an esoteric way. How do you support so yourselves in New York City? We're all getting a salary, and and the company is paying for the expenses. Okay. Yeah. Um, and books. One second books, ahead. One second ahead, and the mind of the leader from Harvard's. Uh, yeah, great books. Read them. All right. <laughs> Thank you both. Really appreciate it. Great job. Thanks. Dan. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Thank you to Jacqueline and Rasmus for coming on the show. I learned a lot. So let's get to the voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. My name is Julie, and my question is, um, focusing on the breath has always been a bit difficult for me because as soon as I start to focus on my breath, I either hold my breath or I hyperventilate. And I don't know if this has ever been addressed in any kind of meditation um, work that's out there, but I find it hard for me to focus on my breath is there something else to practice meditation that you can focus on besides your breath? Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Julie. The good news is this is super common. And yes, there are many, many options you can focus. Uh, if, you, if, if feeling the breath coming in and going out makes you anxious or sometimes you hold your breath or hyperventilate or some people feel like even if they're not getting an anxious response, they worry we had another voicemail that we're not um, playing on the show this week, but from a young man named Jesse in San Diego who worries that um, that he might be controlling his breath too much. I've, I've had that issue before. So there are lots of other ways to meditate. You can just focus on the feeling of your body sitting, and then when you get distracted, start again. Or you can just pick one spot on the body, like your your bottom on the cushion or the feeling of your hands touching one another or um, – if you've got them cuffed together. So the body is a great place to go. You can also do body scan meditations where you start at you know, the, your head and work your way down to the toes. You can focus on sounds. You can do open awareness where you're just focused on whatever naturally arises. And then when you get distracted, you start again. You can do loving kindness meditation. We have all of the aforementioned flavors of meditation on the app. If you want more granular advice, about where to find specific styles of meditation on the app. Use your coach. Uh, a lot of users aren't really tuned into this, but if you use the app, you get a coach who will answer your questions very quickly. Just go to the find, – find your coach within the app and type in a question, and she or he will get back to you uh, lickety-split, and they love doing this, and they will get as deep as you want on any question uh, about which you are curious. So good news for you, Julie. Thanks for that question. Also, thanks to Jesse, although we're not playing your voicemail. We appreciated both of those questions. Here's voicemail number two. Hi, Dan. This is Justin calling from Ottawa, Ontario in Canada. I had a question and a comment. Maybe I'll start with the question. Uh, first, uh, as always, thank you so much for all the work you do. Um, you really uh, deepened my practice and introduced me to so many uh, teachers and teachings that have really uh, changed my life. Uh, so my first question is about lineage and how you feel about lineage, because uh, obviously in the West, we we don't really think about lineage very much. Um, but if you're approaching it from a Buddhist perspective or even trying to find the right teacher, um, you know, there's considerations like, do you study with a Theravadan teacher? Do you study with a Zen teacher? Do you study with a Vajrayana teacher? And, and um, is that lineage important or are the... Uh, teachings and uh, sessions and meditations more important. Anyways, it's a question I've been thinking about a lot and felt torn between different lineages at different times. So I was uh, 
uh, wondering what you thought about that. For my comment, I was just really uh, taken by the voicemail on your uh, Ruth King episode uh, with the uh, lady who was talking about her issues with confronting anxiety uh, during meditation. And um, actually, one of the coaches on the 10% Happier app gave me such good advice for this, and I just wanted to share it. Um, and uh, she was saying when, when anxieties, you know, come up or, you know, very strong emotions come up during uh, meditation, you know, you can note it, um, note how it feels, and then you can kind of make a decision at that point whether you're going to uh, return to your focus uh, and kind of just let that emotion be there or really dive into the feeling of the emotion um, and accept it. And she described it as kind of like whitewater uh, rapids, like just as you're hitting the curb, are you going to go for it or not? And maybe that's one approach that could be helpful because if uh, you're feeling super stressed out and that anxiety or emotion is just too powerful, it's totally okay to just note it uh, and say, oh, that's this, and then return to your focus. And then sometimes you might be able to jump into the waters. Anyways, that was a very long message. But um, thank you so much again, and uh, thank you for everything you do. Thank you. So much to respond to there. I think I can do this pretty quickly. On the how to deal with anxiety thing, it reminds me of something Jeff Warren has talked about, the teacher Jeff Warren, who's quite popular on the app, which is that you can focus in or focus away. So if you've got a strong emotion like anxiety, one move is to focus in to, as the coach uh, who was consulting with, with Justin said, you know, jump into the into the rapids and really examine what it's like, this feeling of anger or anxiety or fear. And in so examining it, you 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 can break it down into its component parts of what kind of thoughts come up, what what's it like in your body, and ultimately that can lead you to seeing it as both impermanent and changing and also impersonal. And that is a great way to unhook from these often massively powerful emotions that that we think are ours in some way, but in fact are just these passing storms that that we don't own, really, and, and they don't have to own us. The other is to focus away. So focus in would be to dive into the thing. Focus away would be to to focus on the feeling of your breath coming in and going out, making a note every time anxiety gets really prominent but instead, you're going to stay with the the often calming um, features of of the breath. So those are two, in my experience, great ways to work in those situations. I'm glad the coach gave you uh, good advice. I'm not surprised because our coaches are really highly trained meditators. But your question had to do with lineage. So should lineage be important when you're picking a meditation teacher? I'm going to give you my opinion. So this is just one guy's opinion. My opinion is in uh, that it's really about the teacher. Do you respond well to the teacher? Um, now, obviously, lineage will be intermingled with that. In other words, the you know your feelings, of, uh, uh, whether you relate to somebody, uh, in part, will will speak to that person's personal predilections and their taste and the type of practice that they may have gravitated to towards will be the type of practice that you would gravitate towards. So gravitate towards. So, but I, I, for me, it's really just about the person first. 
And the thing I'm always looking for, and I've said this on the podcast, is how – well, I guess two things. One is do they have a real background, an extensive grounding in the practice? Have they done this for a while? Have they studied it seriously? Have they done a lot of retreats? Who are their teachers? That, to me, is always very interesting. And then also, what are they like? Do they seem like they're putting uh, the precepts of the practice to work in their own lives? I'm always interested in, like, how seriously do they take themselves? To me, that just seems like a really interesting data point because if when people take themselves too seriously, just that's somehow just sent my antenna go up uh, when that's the case. Just by way of example, Joseph Goldstein, who's you know been practicing meditation for 50 years, also extremely popular on the 10% Happier app, also my personal meditation teacher, also a guy who's never showed up on this podcast, although – we are doing an event together in uh, April in Boston, which will be on this podcast, and you can get tickets to that if you Google it. I forget the link. I'll, we'll put it in the show notes, but it's if you just Google Dan Harris, Joseph Goldstein, Boston event, it, something should come up. It's put on by the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, CIMC. It's a benefit for CIMC and IMS, the Insight Meditation Center Society. So that's in Boston in April. You should go to it, and then he'll finally be on the podcast as soon as we post it. Anyway, I digress. Joseph doesn't take himself seriously at all. If he takes the Dharma seriously, he takes your practice, if you're one of his students, very seriously. But when he's talking about himself, he's incredibly light. And that, to me, just seems like a really interesting data point. This is just one man's opinion. There are, on the question of lineage, there are many flavors of Buddhism. As you listed some of them, Justin, Theravada, which is kind of the old school there's Zen, there's Tibetan, and then even within those, there are lots of little nooks and crannies. So, and 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 uh, you know, major schools within Tibetan Buddhism, uh, within Zen, within Theravada. So, I I think these things are interesting, but personally, it's really been about the teacher first for me. The one other thing I'll say, and and I I think I've said this before, but it bears repeating. That people, when they get excited about meditation, often want to sort of hoover up everything. But I, I would argue that when you're going to, you know, when it comes to your practice and your teacher, I would pick one thing to start with, one school, one teacher, one practice, or one set of related practices taught by in 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 a particular tradition. And really go for that for a couple of years rather than trying a million things all at once. Because uh, it's really hard to know what's working when you do the latter, when you're just doing everything at once. And then once you have a grounding in one type of one lineage, per se, or one teacher or one style, then I think doing a little taste testing from there. So I think it makes sense to do taste testing at the beginning to really get a sense of like what you're what resonates with you and then to commit for a while. And then then you might want to pop your head up and look around uh, and do some comparative practicing. But again, that's just one guy's opinion. Really appreciate these voicemails, guys. Keep them coming. And as I've said before, we are now going to or soon start having teachers answer the questions. And I'm told that the first teacher who's going to be answering a bunch of questions in the very near future, we got a ringer for this one, Sharon Salzberg, one of the uh, most important and well-known, eminent and lovable meditation teachers on planet Earth. Thank you for listening to the 10% Happier Podcast. We love that we have a, a growing and engaged audience. 
We'll be back next Wednesday with another show. I'm going to say what I always say at the end of the show, but please don't dismiss this as a perfunctory thing. If you go on to your, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, where you go on to the player, and if you give us a rating and a review, especially, I mean, I'm just, I'm like somewhat biased toward five-star reviews, but you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to put my thumb on the scale here. But if you give us a rating or a review, that really helps us in the rankings, and so it makes it easier for people to find the show. So do, doing that or telling people about us on social media, all of that is incredibly helpful and helps us continue to do what we do, and we love what we do. So please, uh, if you've got a moment, do that. I want to thank, before I go, uh, the producers of the show, Ryan Kessler and also Samuel Johns. And we will see you again next week. If you have ideas for guests, hit me up on Twitter. We really do look at that, at Dan B. Harris. We'll see you soon. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.